Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. This is the Pop Cult Podcast. I'm Seth. I'm Ariana. And after one week off, we're back. We're back. We decided to take a week off. Uh, I was coming off of an acid trip. <laughs> yeah. Where I experienced ego death, uh, which was a pretty intense experience. And also, we were kind of in this weird week where we were, were waiting for like some really good movies to come out at the end of the year. And I didn't could get access to some of the movies I wanted to watch. So it just felt like we were kind of forcing an episode, essentially. Yeah, and we would probably end up talking about shows that we want to wait until later on to discuss. That'll be more part of our end of the year thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are back because there were two films that dropped recently uh, that are going to probably be on many critics' best of the year lists. And so we're going to talk about our thoughts on them. Uh, one of those is Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, which we'll talk about in the second half of the episode. But first, we're going to discuss Todd Haynes' May-December. So it's a Haynes Payne episode. Haynes and Payne. <laughs> Which sounds like <laughs> a TBS detective show. Yeah. Uh, so May-December, the dis- official description goes as follows. 20 years after their notorious tabloid romance, a married couple buckle under the pressure when a Hollywood actress meet- meets them to do research for a film about their past. Uh, The film is very obviously based on the Mary Kay Letourneau, I think was her name, and Vili Falau was the name of the boy. Uh, Mary Kay Letourneau was a middle school teacher, I think, in like Oregon or Washington State. Yeah. And she had an affair with one of her seventh grade students and became impregnated by him. And apparently they're still together. She's dead. Oh, oh, yeah, she died. That's right. (laughs) She did. (laughs) But I think they were married up to her death. Yep. And then had not just the first child, but had other children after that. It was very weird. Yeah, very I think disturbing. she got pregnant by him like twice. Yeah. Uh, it, like, And I think they did have twins the second time, yeah. which that's reflected in this movie. Uh, so this is uses that as its basis. It definitely references a lot of real life aspects of that case, but it is certainly its own thing. This is not like a true crime movie. It's something else entirely. Uh, so, Ariana, before we talk about May, December, let's talk about just Todd Haynes' filmography in general. Uh, of his movies, I know you've watched with me uh, Poison, which was his anthology film with the short films all centered around like AIDS and queerness. Yes. Uh, Safe, which also featured Julianne Moore. Yes. Uh, we saw Velvet Goldmine. We saw Far From Heaven. We've seen Carol. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything else I forgot that we've seen, but we've seen quite a few of his movies. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know, just in general, what do you think of uh, Todd Haynes as a filmmaker? I think he's a filmmaker that uh, he deserves a lot more praise than he's received. A yeah. lot of times what happens with Todd Haynes, at least for me, is I will think to myself, he is probably one of my favorite directors. But I always have to like kickstart my memory to be like, oh, why did he? Because it's just like he has one of those names that isn't like can be can fade into the background. He does take a lot of time between films. And I don't see I mean, at the least for us, we don't really watch like a lot of interviews with him. Yeah, he uh, I find he doesn't have one of he's not one of those filmmakers with a very distinct style like a Wes Anderson. Yeah. All of his movies are stylized. But it almost feels like his style is something that's, I don't quite have a word to describe it, or he kind of 
changes style based on the script that he's given. Yeah, so it feels more like he has a chameleon kind of sense about him, but... He's not like one of those journeyman directors that like studios love, where they're yes. just a guy who'll make a movie. It still, it still makes it to how well he wants to also, make it. He always goes with topics that are interesting to him. You don't get into this film where you're kind of like, oh, he just did it in order. Like, oh, this was a movie film. This was in order to make sure that his next film will be his passion project. Nothing feels like a compromise. No, it doesn't feel like a compromise. So this... Film has a lot in relation to Far From Heaven, but it feels, I mean, style-wise. Style-wise. It's it's referencing kind of like female-centric melodramas. Yes. Which I I thought this kind of felt like a Lifetime movie. That's what we were talking about like during it. It felt like there was a cheapness to it, but it was on purpose that still looked amazing. Yeah, it was never like cheap enough that you were kind of like, oh, this is like a low-budget movie. It there was like a sinister edge to the movie that you don't get with yes. a lifetime movie. Uh, and I also felt like it was sleazy, but it also felt like mature. It wasn't bringing up these like controversial topics to titillate the audience. It was bringing them up and exploring them because Todd Haynes genuinely wanted to understand like the mind of someone that could do something like this. Yeah. And it's also just, it's a condemnation of sorts, even though he is extracting so much influenced by this past case that we mentioned there's also this underlying story where it's sort of like who are we to invade these people's lives in order to get a thrill out of it well it's i would call it it's a film of a clash of two predators yes gracie played by julianne moore the mary Kay letourneau stand-in is a very obvious predator based on why she's known yeah but however, Natalie Portman's character, the actress Elizabeth, is also a predator, but a different kind. She's more like a scavenger mm-hmm. in that she's coming in and picking the bones of this very dysfunctional, very fucked up family for no reason to help them, but to help herself. Yes. <laughs> and so in that way, Haynes is showing there's a lot of parallels between these two women. And it's great because so often in America, American cinema frames like, well, movies that center on women should always show women as positive, heroic protagonists. And yeah, those movies exist. But I think for actors, the roles that are more interesting, and the film kind of even says that, are these more fucked up roles. Yeah. And this is a movie where you get two great female actors, actresses, really taking on roles that are problematic. Yes. And doing amazing things with them and making them very interesting and never never dulling the edges of their characters and making us constantly uncomfortable. Like almost every scene, there's something uncomfortable about it. Uh, But there is one performance I think was the breakout. Of course, everybody knows Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. They're great performances. I would say, I think Portman compared to Moore uh, has more inconsistency in her performances. You were saying the other day that Portman is very dependent on who's directing her. Yes. While more, you can kind of put her in any movie, not every movie, not but but she's been, pretty. Whatever you put her in, she's gonna do a pretty good I job. Think she is, has even said that it depends on the uh, like the director for her. But Todd Haynes and her already have an established oh, yeah. relationship, so there are times in the way that she moved her mouth that I was like, you know, my memory jogging back to like, 
the scandal was exactly the way that woman moved her mouth but it was on selective times when she would like do this baby voice she has like a lisp the character of gracie but it's not done in a way that feels exaggerated or cartoonish it feels like oh yeah when people have a lisp and maybe they've had some like speech therapy it never fully goes away. If you're paying close attention to them speaking, you'll pick up on, oh, there's like a little bit yeah, of a speech Yeah, and also she manipulated at time when necessary in order to make herself more girlish. Or naive. We're going to yes. talk about that, how naivete is a big theme throughout yeah. this movie. Uh, and I feel like Portman, I hope she does more work with Todd Haynes because she did so well in this movie. And she's an actress who is very hit and miss for me. Yes. Uh, sometimes I just... It feels like she's phoning it in in some movies, and then other times she's just like absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and I think it also just shows that she does the films that are needed to get done in order to like be focused on the smaller projects because she has mentioned that before. For example, she left Marvels for a while because like Marvel Cinematic Universe because she was like, I don't like the direction where my character's going. And she came back, but even so, one of the worst Marvel movies we've ever got. (laughs) It wasn't her fault. No, she was like she was fine. She was fine, but you know when she has a director that has a clear vision, it's lock and step. When the director does not have a clear vision, you're just kind of like, why are you here? Why are the fuck you here? (laughs) Like, but the breakout performance of this movie. So it's the actor that you're going in. You probably won't know much about. At least that was true for me. Charles Melton as Joe, who is the Vili Falau stand-in. Yes, he... Uh, Heartbreaking uh, performance. Yeah, okay, so you don't know much about him as I, know, I do. I think I know he played Moose in Riverdale. Okay, yeah. But yeah, I've yeah. never even seen so, a clip like, of it. So, like, the thing is, like, a lot of people like to compare him to Handsome Squidward, like the meme. Because oh, of his face. Very strong like, jaw. Most yeah. of the time, it's like, he's like a six-pack really like and he had a dad bod in this movie yeah and i really love the fact that he just had a dad bod but he was like he was still attractive there's this well he's a the character of joe who he plays is this like roiling mass of contradictions he has a dad bod but he's clearly emotionally not an adult oh no there's something wrong inside very badly that his own children seem more mature than him near the end of the movie yeah, and it's and it's the sadness about it because their kids don't want to like talk or admit why it is that their father is the way he is. Well, it's like the psychological horror of coming to terms with the nature of their parentage is so awful that like I would not blame them. Yeah, and I think it's also like it, it would make sense even if like the genders were reversed, right? Yeah. It's become so normalized like the, have a like, much older father and a much have, younger yeah, mother yeah it's become normalized like way in the past that no i met your mom when she was 14 <laughs> and like when she's 18 we got married <laughs> really you waited like, you waited yeah it's it's like it is something that it's like it does feel like a lifetime film in where you find out that they made the story like the the you know based on this story because there's a film within the film that is like the sleazy adaptation yes. yeah and it's supposed to be Natalie Portman's character is not like this A-list actress she is on TV a show. show she's a TV actress who's on Nora's arc it's like a show about a vet yes so like a medical procedural show yes. yeah and um she's doing a 
like made for TV, but a little bit more heightened film about what had happened, even though like there a, had been past like, like an films. HBO original kind yes. of thing where it's like it's that little bit of higher budget. So it's supposed to be classier. Yes. But still exploitative. Yeah. And so she uh, goes to meet up with them. I do like the fact that we like we do start with her just having a normal conversation with her fiance, fiance <laughs> um, on the phone. Yeah, we, she doesn't really have any direct human connections in the film. It's always over no. the phone. Yeah. So she like she imposes herself in this family and forces a connection with them. Yes. But then anybody she knows outside in her normal life, you don't see her physically. They're far with them. away from her. Yeah. And I think it's this clever device of showing on how she keeps um, people at a distance when it comes to her true persona. And she will not let that be revealed. And then, like, there comes a point in the movie that, like, Gracie, played by um, more kind of, like, vanishes in the background a little bit until she's back in the forefront. Well, because it's clear that Elizabeth is the main character of the yes. film, the actress. Yeah. And, um... Elizabeth, for example, like does this whole thing. She goes to the twin school and like she addresses like a drama class. A drama class yeah. where one of the twins is there to talk about wanting to be in complicated. But it's also like Well, there's a question about sex scenes in movies. Yes. And she like almost stares down. It's Mary, who's the uh youngest daughter of the of Joe and no, Gracie. I think it's not the she's talking about. But it there's these moments where she like glances at her while yeah. she's talking about it, and there's this implication, like a subtext, that they both have an understanding that when they're talking about sex scenes, they're both thinking about the sex scenes that Elizabeth will be doing in the movie about her mother and her father. Yeah, and it's like it's also the she does it in a way that isn't too explicit, but it's also enough to make uh everybody a little bit uncomfortable like she pushes it to the edge where it's not pornographic but you're just like she is talking about lust and want that makes the teenager still because it's coming out from like an adult's mouth and then that scene i feel like it pairs with the scene where elizabeth goes to the pet shop which in this version of events gracie was not joe's teacher yeah she worked at a pet store and Joe was like a teenage employee, I think, over the summer or something. Like had applied for a job, but through her. But she had known of him because they were in the same community. Yes. And so the scene where Elizabeth has the manager of the pet store take her back to where this couple were caught having statutory rape. Essentially yeah. that she Gracie was committing statutory rape. Uh, and then when he leaves, how Elizabeth like writhes on the stairs where they were caught psychologically like recreating in her head the yeah. moment there but then her face is so disturbing because she has so much glee and like pleasure from fantasizing this moment in her yeah. head and i felt like that was the moment where the film was kind of revealing to us there's something wrong with elizabeth too she is a not a good person yeah she's manipulating the situation in order to get into the character's head but it's not at a point of being like questioning what are like what where, where is the gray area instead she's kind of viewing that like gracie like was like basically in charge of the whole thing which essentially she is um but it's also like viewing herself as a possibility of taking gracie's place entirely 
Well, because there she starts sneaking around with Joe, or she goes to visit Joe at his work because mm-hmm. he's an X-ray technician. I think. Yes. And uh, there's the comment she makes because she never tells Gracie that she was going to go see Joe at his work, and makes that comment of, "Oh, I know what it must be like to sneak around with you with now. you now." And, she, and oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. And it's and, it's, and then she goes like promise not to tell anybody and it's this thing of where she is making joe relive the kind of psychological manipulation that gracie did to him because elizabeth doesn't view these these as people she views them as specimens to be studied yes like you might observe an animal or something and so she has no empathy for them which is horrific and it's just simply about oh i want to see how he reacts when i say something to help inform the performance I'm going to make so I can get accolades and applause for what I do. Yeah. Not understanding, because she never sees it for herself, the way Joe just like spirals for the rest of the movie and becomes like a child by the end of it again, Mm -hmm. where he's like whimpering and sobbing and being very uh, submissive in a very disturbing way to Gracie. Yes. Uh, What did you think of the roof scene between joe and his son peter that was so heartbreaking and i think like i love the dialogue because it just felt so earnest and the way that he did it was just i think it was great because i think it's also this is an actor who normally plays the age of a teenager a teenager right so there is something that felt very organic when he was like, oh, I've never done weed. Like, and his son's like, are you like, are you kidding me that you've never done weed? Kind of like perplexed about it. Because it's, he sees the Joe as his dad. Yeah. But without comprehending, well, my dad is what, like 16 years older than me? Because <laughs> they would have been the kids that they had when she got out of prison. So he was maybe like 18 years old. Like 17 or 18. Yeah. Like he's not much older than him. Yeah. And it's this, yeah, that moment where Joe kind of makes that connection of, oh, my dad's a child. Yeah, in comparison to, like, everyone else's parents. And it's, like, this sadness when Joe's like, I don't know if we're we're making a connection. I pulled that quote. It said, I can't tell if we're connecting or if I'm creating a bad memory for you. And, like, it is, it's heartbreaking because it's it's sad to the point of, like, that it just feels so vulnerable and so true of just being like, I want to connect with you, but I don't know if I'm traumatizing you now. And it is also a reflection that Joe is emotionally immature, so he can't gauge what's an appropriate interaction with his son or not. Also, the fact that he was like groomed and raped by this woman, he and he's now married to her. This is a whole minefield of not understanding what's appropriate and inappropriate. Yeah, and it's also like it's not just the appropriate or inappropriate. He is the main parent that is the most concerned about their kids. That is, yeah. Gracie feels very disconnected from her this because she has two older children from her first marriage that are estranged. Yeah. And then her children with Joe, we don't see a lot the of interaction. They say that they're estranged, but she says that they talk to them on a she on a day-to-day basis. Oh, but when you see their the way the movie plays out, they're clearly estranged. Cuz like, like towards the end like she reveals something like to Elizabeth that was a conversation between her oldest son and her and she's like, "How do you know that?" And she's like, "I told you. I talked to him every day." Oh, that day. is true. Yeah. So it's well, let's go back to Gracie, because I think Gracie is probably, 
I'm still not sure which I think is more interesting, Elizabeth or Gracie. They're both very fascinating characters to like analyze. Yeah. But there's a quote I pulled from Gracie that I think informs a lot of her mind, which is, uh, I am naive. I always have been. In a way, it's been a gift. That it's been a gift because Gracie turns on and off her naivete when it is convenient for her in the situation. Yeah. And especially the very ending scene between Elizabeth and Gracie, we suddenly see Gracie is not a naive person. She's a vicious person. Yeah, she just manipulates the situation. It's sort of like, it is this these undertones of things that we see in normally like in Lifetime movies or in like soap operas. It's the emotional manipulation that a lot of times we're like, oh, it's not equivalent to how men speak. But it's also this understanding that she uses it like a tool very carefully and also ensuring that nobody else knows what she's doing, but also just being like, like the example that I have is just like when Elizabeth goes and interviews with like Gracie's lawyer and he's Mm -hmm. like, I can see the resemblance between you two. You look like you could never harm a thing in your life. And how he was like, no, she's very naive. She thought that this is a uh, like, and so it's like she's even fucking convinced him. Well, it's Gracie is an actor. She just doesn't perform in movies. No, she's she's an actor in her own life. Yeah, that no one really knows the real Gracie, or those that do have been like groomed or intimidated into silence. You think about the interview she does. I think it's like a neighbor. The woman with the glasses near the beginning who's at the cookout. Because yeah. Gracie mentioned something about, oh, the people in our community love us in this suburb. Yeah. Um, And even the neighbor doesn't want this movie to be made. Because she's like, things have finally settled down. And like, and it's because like, she has an empty nest now. And so Gracie always tells her what to do. Well, and it's, I think one of the big themes of the movie is showing how evil can be normalized. Because it's too disgusting to want to grapple with. It's. Like the real life situation between Mary Kay Letourneau and Vili Falau or any adult child sexual relationship is so abhorrent that there's a natural inclination to want to look away and get away from it. But we can't understand it unless we look close at it. And looking close at it doesn't mean you're going to uh, empathize with the, the predator. You need to understand what they're doing so you can prevent similar things in the future. It's also like the fact that there is a lack of talk about about sexuality and it's about the fact that like even there is so complicated there's so many complications of when you someone decides to become a predator but also those who are under like are basically the victims there is because the one film that i thought i was thinking about which one was it that we watched recently it was like he becomes a sex worker after he'd been abused and then he meets another kid who had blacked out everything. Oh, Mysterious Skin, Gregor yes. Rocky's film. Yeah. We think about Gregor Rocky that, and Todd Haynes, that would be a good like, pairing. Yeah. We 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 taught like how one kid completely blocks out everything and it's convinced he's been abducted by aliens to explain why. He creates a lie that's more comforting than the truth. And then the other kid also does it doesn't want to demonize this person because he like explored bodily pleasure because that's joseph gordon levitt's character because he's queer vilifying one of the only other queer people he's ever met in his life as a child feels complicated yeah and so not realizing the man wasn't 
queer in that way he was a child sexual predator yeah and it's like it's it's that complication of it like there's this whole thing that like there's so gracie and elizabeth are in the house making pine uh, upside pineapple uh upside down cake, cake yeah right and apparently this is just how like gracie makes money the lawyer had said in passing that his wife orders a ton of cake there's no need for it they just do it to keep her busy it's and it's like this thing of almost being like if you're keeping her busy then you're also basically saying we know she's a predator so we need to keep her busy so she's not going to go be a predator yeah that's that unspoken thing of we cannot let this woman do this again but we also don't know how to do that so yeah we'll just uh keep her busy put her focus on this yes and so um you know she's helping her out and then she goes you know Joe had more experience than I did. Mm-hmm. He's like, he was with two other girls before we started being with And she was other. only with her husband. And she's like, and I'd only been with my husband during the time. So he had a world of experience before me. And you could tell like Elizabeth is almost stunned. When Gracie is saying it in a way that's like, you need to believe this thing I'm telling you. Yeah. And it's like it's done because it's like a lot of times even though like yeah elizabeth is a horrible person but she wants to revel in this and she only she picks her fights strategically so her making like the daughter upset that's fine teenagers have like um upsets all the time and they're not going to talk about like what is upsetting them because it's like then they would actually confront us to what's happening with their parents She's very careful around Gracie. And then Gracie is there making it seem like she's so sweet and innocent. Like, oh, her brothers loved and protected her. And like her younger brother would push boys against the wall if they ever came near her to ask what the intention was. It's like she is this. But then they reveal something of that's was it the lawyer reveals about her brothers it's the it's the son but it turns out to be a lie yeah yeah yeah. where but like that's a story that gracie has told once again to position herself as i was just the poor victim in every situation i've ever been in you have to feel sorry for me yeah and it's like this thing of it being like and then you compare it to joe who has hobbies of like you know helping grow like the like monarch butterfly stuff He's got these interests. He has friends. He's kind of flirting with someone online, but not really flirting. Who's into the uh, monarch community. Yes, but it's also someone who's closer to his age. And and I felt like the scene where he like lets the butterfly go was so heartbreaking because it's, it's the metaphor for him. He's trapped in this house with Gracie. He doesn't have the emotional maturity. He's like, he's the caterpillar. He can't form his cocoon. He can't mature into who he's supposed to be while his children are. Yeah. Like, and he's trapped. And it's sad because it's like he gets called in by his daughter who's dressed up for a graduation and they're all ready to go. Yeah. And it's like, but I think the heartbreaking bits are we watch also between scenes Gracie just sobbing and crying and this is the way that she keeps like, Joe. Manipulative hissy fits. Yes. Yeah. And it's like she's crying like a little girl. Yeah, she she's also not emotionally mature. But with her emotional immaturity, she's also a very cunning predator. Yes. And that's a very dangerous combination. It's a way to keep Joe at her side because at some point, Elizabeth tells Joe, 
she can take care of herself. She's fine. And he's like, you don't know that. You don't know her the way I know her. And that's also like that thing of manipulation of being like when we've heard people who, for example, can't break up with their their significant others because the significant other has said they will kill themselves if they do that. Um, They've like, tricked you into thinking they're dependent on you. Yeah. When yeah. it's in reality, if you left, yes, there would be an emotional outburst, but they would get over it uh, over time. It's a parasitic relationship. Yeah, yeah. And like it's when Joe confronts Gracie about it, it is heartbreaking because he's asking legitimate questions to her and she won't and she answer is underlining his words being like you said this and it's also like there's just so much cruelty in yeah, that scene and yeah manipulation even at the beginning when like for example elizabeth is having dinner, like lunch or dinner with them and started asking at what age did they really start and they she says was it sixth grade and they both respond it was seventh grade so it is something that it seems like they have practiced this they have decided this well they like the real life fucked up story they've probably had media training because they were interviewed so many times it's also making sure they had their story straight and in order not to like mix up the other and it's like Oh, I always knew that Joe was around because he was one of the few, like, there's not many Korean families. He corrects her and says half Korean. Like, it's this absent of, like, Joe's mother because she died when he was in his 20s. Like, and his, when he's his father his seems, like, checked out. Is, like, just... He sits in his house and kind of rots away. And it's just, like, and it's the sadness of, like seeing this and you know like this is probably yeah he's a good probably a good father a good provider a good person but but his upstart yeah. was so fucked like, up he should have never been put in this position because he'll never be the kind of father he could be he'll never be the kind of partner he could be he'll never be the kind of anything he could be because he had life stolen from him by a predator yeah and it it becomes even more evident like later on in the scenes when he's being seduced by elizabeth where she is making like it is heartbreaking because she's making it worse by being like you were so young it shouldn't have happened to you and then the moment that he kind of has He's essentially having like a tantrum that would be equivalent to a teenager yeah. when he's like, I thought you liked me. I thought like this was a real thing. He's like, why did like, why did we have sex? And she just tells him, cause that's what adults do. Yeah. And that is the moment that you see that he breaks. Because he didn't he's think like, of himself as an adult. Yeah. He sees himself as the child that he was back when all of this happened. And like, so that makes it heartbreaking in so many levels because you're probably like afterwards he's sort of like on the sidelines watching his children graduate having like an emotional reaction so you start to wonder did he even attend his own graduation i don't think or he did, did he, he couldn't have because it was like this whole thing that like you know media would have been upon them immediately about it and like he had to keep himself hidden and like and he has this job that's an x-ray so he's like in the shadows yeah so he is well and like he's looking inside other people terrified to look inside himself yeah and like really come to terms with what happened to him yeah and it's like it's also like the sad thing because you realize oh he has this love for insects and animals um, and that's why he went to the pet store because he had that interest. It and she not... and Gracie exploited that. Yeah, yeah. And it's just sort of like, and this 
question of it being that even though like okay she preyed upon this one person and she marries them and they have this life together and it's so heartbreaking because at like at what point do you ever question yourself like oh man like he could have had a better life had this not happened like even it would say like they had met when he was 20 and she was maybe like a few years older like early 40s or something yeah but there's so much that he has missed out in opportunities and that it because of that it's it's it makes you wonder like you feel sad for the kids because the kids are basically having normal combative conversations with their parents like that whole thing like how like Gracie's like super fucking mean to her, like her daughter. She's like saying, Oh, which, you're so brave which to show on, her arms. Oh, is that the um the twin? Twin, yeah, Mary. She's like, You're so brave to show your arms. I would have never done that at your age. But what I find interesting is Honor, who's the older one, who I get the sense has already graduated college. No, she's in she's college. In, so I think it feels like she's near the end of college based on the timeline of events. So she's probably like 2021. 20, yeah she feels like i feels like there's a lot to that character that's implied and unspoken in the yeah, movie like the way that she was like they're like oh you know honor you're gonna go see like uh the neck uh, like this gift that we got your sister and she's like did you get her a scale like you got me a scale yeah yeah there's a lot of like she i think honor has sized up her mother and doesn't respect her but exists in this family because that's kind of what she has to do but it's also the question of it being like if you're that combative with your parent because she does ask oh what's going on with the actress and her sister like rolls her eyes not wanting to talk about it and they're laughing to each other but it's you almost wonder like was that ever brought up to the table has honor ever gone like well let you know if we're going to talk about fucked up things like talk about how you two came together because it's like it's this interesting thing. It was the movie is based in 2015. So the internet does exist. It's not as if you can fade this out. Um, she talked like Gracie talks about how they sold their wedding photos in order to like buy, I think it was probably buy the house or yeah. whatever. And it's like, so not only do you not want it being brought up, but when you do bring it up, there is a cash fee. Yeah, it's the the way she's turned this horror into like a money machine. Yeah, and to show which is even like, worse. Fine, because we ended up together and it's a fairy tale, right? We went through all these obstacles to show that we're really in love. And so it's a great film, but you like it's got there's so much to talk about. There's so yeah. many layers. Here. And it's available now on Netflix. So if you have Netflix, there's no reason not to watch it. It's there. It comes in at a little under two hours. So it's in that like perfect runtime that it d- never overstays its welcome. I feel like there was never any lull in the film. Every scene felt like it built on what was going yeah. on. Uh, the the lighting and the cinematography is fantastic. That's why we talk about like there's a if there's a cheapness about it it is so well done because i remember like there was one scene that they're just like we're just watching like the curvature of like an arc of trees and all i can think is god fucking damn it it's so well done yeah (laughs) Uh, so would you recommend this film to our audience yes (laughs) yeah i would recommend it as well uh it's available on netflix and you should check it out when you get the chance
curmudgeonly instructor at a New England prep school remains on campus during Christmas break to babysit a handful of students with nowhere to go. He soon forms an unlikely bond with a brainy but damaged troublemaker and with the school's head cook, a woman who just lost a son in the Vietnam War. This is director Alexander Payne's latest film, uh, The Holdovers. Uh, so before we talk specifically about this movie, kind of like with uh, Todd Haynes, let's talk about Alexander Payne because we watched um, all of his movies last year, I believe. Uh, everything from Citizen Ruth up to Downsizing, which includes like Election, About Schmidt, Sideways, Nebraska, all these movies. What was your takeaway from that film series, Ariana, about Alexander Payne? Uh, all his best films were probably before his divorce with Sandra Oh. Yeah. <laughs> which indicates to me either she had a great fucking influence or something broke inside. I was like, she broke that man. <laughs> <laughs> because when you think about election, when you think about side. Well, I don't think, I think he's only had two movies since. Was Nebraska after he divorced her? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Starting with Nebraska, because there was a big gap between Sideways and Nebraska. Yeah. And I don't think there was anything in between. Yeah, it's sort of like you have interesting women in the films, which you, when you oh, watch... The Descendants. The Descendants. Which I remember kind of liking when I saw it the first time, but then when we rewatched it for that series, I hated it. The one with George Clooney yeah. and Hawaii. I think that was, Sandra Oh was that. Was that year? Was I that think year around that time. <laughs> Sandro, please answer. Yeah. So, what did you do to this man? <laughs> I would say of all his movies, Sideways, I think is my favorite one. Yeah, I, I think I like Election. Okay. Um, just because it's this interesting thing of thinking about how the audience would flip on the characters compared to then and now. Well, the way it was received originally with Election was that the Reese Witherspoon character Tracy Flick was this irredeemable bitch, and you should hate her. But now as an adult, I watch it and I go, no, Matthew Broderick is a piece of shit. Fuck him. Yeah, exactly. So I have weird feelings about him. And this film did not help. It's, I don't think, I think he's a very talented filmmaker. I think every film he makes is his thing. Like he has a certain style to it that he brings to it. And so if it's better than a lot of like, you know, the sort of, marvel cinematic filmmakers where they get some director who has a distinct style or is emerging and then just make them do the most generic boring shit right like alexander payne it's a sort of midwestern muted kind of style yeah and it is unique to american cinema there isn't a lot like that yeah. you have like the coen brothers have this kind of zany slapstick farcical style you have um P.T. Anderson, who often his movies have this very kind of like California sunbaked style. Mm -hmm. Alexander Payne is this kind of desolate Midwestern kind of thing is the vibe that you get. Yeah. Uh, and while this movie takes place on the East Coast, it still has that kind of like quiet tone to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and like there's a lot of people saying the phrase, they're like, this is another one of those. They used to make movies like this, but they don't anymore kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm like, it is true. But I do agree with you that I think. Ultimately, for me, the holdovers did not make it to my favorite films of the year list because of some of the flaws that we're going to be talking about. Mind you, we had an argument about it. It well, wasn't a big argument, but it was an argument about it. You're a horrible person. <laughs> you want it. Okay, so we typically, I get it, it's your letterbox. Well, that's why at the end of the year, you're going to have your own favorite films. Yeah, of the okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But okay, but what happened was we watched the film. You asked me. That would be the first step. <laughs> first, you watch the movie. And you went to go rate it. And we looked at Letterboxd and every it's like at a 4.2. It's pretty high. Yeah. And I said three and a half closer to a three. It's a three in my heart. And in mine, I was like three and a half to a four. And so we settled compromise three and a half. Yes. Yep. But like there was a moment where you were like, oh, no, the cinematography. And then today. Suddenly- no, no, no. OK, OK. <laughs> Your Honor, she's misrepresenting me. Uh, let me correct the record. Uh, it was last night whenever it was pitted up against Blue Jean. Yeah. Which I think Blue Jean is a fine movie. It's, it's better than this film. And I agreed with you. So why are you trying to turn this into a fight? <laughs> I'm not going to be the Siskel to your Ebert, okay? okay? How we uh, get more listeners. They're not going to hear this. <laughs> what, do I need to tag this? Like, oh. It's a knockdown drag out fight between every Adam Whoever has us as like like their number one Spotify. We did find out in our Spotify rep there are three people on Spotify who only listen to our podcast <laughs> and nothing else. And I'm like, are you okay? This is not that great of a podcast. If you are one of these three people, please contact us. Yeah, I would want to know. I mean, like, I think I know who one of them is. Yeah. Uh, but the other two, I'm completely <laughs> at a loss as to who that could be. Uh. <laughs> Because I feel like there's people we know that we mentioned in passing, like, oh, yeah, we reviewed that. And they had no idea. And they were someone that I thought might have listened to the podcast. So I'm like, okay. huh? Okay, okay. We got to get back to the phone. So I agreed with you ultimately that Blue Jean did. It's it was a slightly more. It was better when it came to the characters than the whole. Better acted. Okay, so I do think Paul Giamatti in this movie is great. I think Paul Giamatti in almost everything is great, even when he gives a bad performance, like an amazing Spider-Man 2, where he plays the... He's giving his all. Yeah, because when he played, like, the Russian mafia rhino, I was like, it is hilarious, and I feel like that's what he's going for. Um, But, yeah, it's just ultimately... But, you know, you might want to think twice about your precious blue jean, because it's leaving that list. Okay, but we're when you look at other movies that are coming out... Okay. Talk about this film. Okay. <laughs> God we'll talk it. about how Blue Jean didn't make the list when we do our end year end. <laughs> uh, I think I really appreciated Payne's cinematography in the film. Yeah. The opening title sequence, he uses a Damien Urato song, who's a uh, Pacific Northwestern singer-songwriter that I really like. They used a lot of his music in uh the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country. Mm-hmm. And I just like the vibe of that guy. It's this kind of like quiet contemplative kind of stuff and it worked song about wanting to just go to sleep was that the song or was that another song in the holdovers it was it was the opening um it was the opening uh credits okay yeah yeah where it was showing um the like just life on the uh campus with the the boys okay and i just felt like it set the scene very well. Like they even do the opening uh, production credits are done in an old 1970s style. Uh, the film is. Yeah. Like the, the, the production stuff. Yeah, Cause the film takes place in 1970. Yeah. And so there was an attempt to like, we want to make a movie that looks and feels like these old classic movies. Yeah. And I think it, they didn't nail it, but they did get very close. They did get very close to it. Uh, and so I appreciated that. The I think the film's themes are it's a good theme, which is it's 
a film about making connections in a very cold, cruel world where it's very easy to discard people. Yeah. Because the connection that Paul, uh, Mr. Hunnam forms with Angus and the connection that they form with Mary, it's three people who are isolated finding a way to bond with someone and finding humanity in other people. And yeah. I think that's really well done. Like, that's a great idea. Uh, but I do feel that it, the tone of it is where it went wrong for me and the way those performances are given. I don't think the film ever goes beyond the expectations that the audience would naturally set. And I kind of predicted what the sacrifice Giamatti's character was going to make in order to protect the student, like yeah. in the first act of the movie. Yeah. Like it is one of those movies where uh, the um, the themes of the film are kind of spelled out in the opening lecture between Mr. Hunnam and his students. Yeah. Uh, the dialogue is very uh, heavy-handed, but that is also kind of a thing from these types of movies in the past, right? Yeah. They were not subtle in telling you what the movie was about. I think my problem with this film is that the shifting that it has in order to be like, okay, it's going to be... At first, I was just like, all right, he's going to bond with this one kid, right? But there's going to be like a quirky like little family set up there between all the other kids until like all the other kids vanish mid-movie. There are some surprises like that, how this whole cast of students that are left behind, because you think the holdovers, plural, oh, it's going to be about Mr. Hunnam and this ragtag group of kids. They leave like in the first yeah, 45 I minutes of the movie. I don't like that. Why not? I feel like there was a missed opportunity there. I think there was, there was points of the film that felt as if they were making slide remarks you know, gently poking, but never wanting to go all the way with it. There's uh, this one kid, like Teddy uh, Kuntz. Kuntz he's kind of the, the bitch of the yeah, he's movie. Like, yeah. He's a bit of a bully. He's a fucking racist because yeah. at one point when uh, like Mary, Paul, like Mary's giving them the food and like Paul's like, do you want to sit with us? And she's like, looks at teddy and it's like no no thank you there's an implied history because it's a boarding school that like this kid has made racial comments yes, towards her, and yeah. he's like you know she's supposed to be doing her job blah, blah, blah. and like there's an outburst but there's never a moment where we say oh that kid learned his lesson instead the kid kind of just goes on a fucking skiing trip and gets a sunburn but the, i think you're missing that is kind of part of the movie right mr hunnam his constant refrain is that the boys that come to this school uh, don't understand the great privilege that they have and in most cases aren't deserving of it and that he believes their job as teachers are to teach them to have I... humility and he the end of the movie is that he fails in that effort that the school isn't going to do that the school is always going to protect these rich kids because their parents have money and the thing is but my problem was it's sort of like for example i was interested in like the asian kid that did not go home because it was too far away Mm -hmm. and i was just like i wanted like i noticed that like angus is like is kind to him at one point because he like has an accident in the bed and he explains to him what he's going to do to help him out like i kind of wish that there was more bonding between the kid and him oh, like other stuff it was just like no we're going to go right to well, paul and angus because they're the most important what you're ones. arguing for is an entirely different movie i know that <laughs> but, but i am i'm looking at the movie for what it is and I understand what that the intent of that scene from a screenwriter's point of view is you're establishing something about Angus's character. He has empathy for those who are vulnerable or harmed. 
but it, and that's something that Mr. Hunnam doesn't know about him yet. Yeah. And that's something that they learn about each other over the course of the movie. So the argument you could make is that this single Asian character in the movie existed only to serve as a way to showcase something about Angus, the yeah. white boy in the movie. Exactly. And but the movie you're wanting would be an entirely different yeah, movie with entirely different themes. Because God damn it, this movie was not that goddamn interesting. And so what I'm doing is I'm looking at the movie as it is and how keeping with the plot that they settled on, how could you have improved it or what were the flaws with that? Yeah, and then I also have a problem with the fact that so we have two uh black characters. One black character just appears out of fucking nowhere after uh Angus has an accident in the You're about Danny? The janitor? Yeah. No, he doesn't appear out of nowhere. He's in like the opening, he's in the first act of the movie. Really? Yeah. Like what okay, replay it for me. I don't re- I just remember there was a black janitor that worked at the school. They yeah, showed him. I just thought that maybe he was not there the whole entire time until it was Well, like... I mean, I didn't know he stayed during the exactly. winter that break. Exactly. was the part that confused me because then he shows up, he's like, Okay, there was a something happened in the gymnasium. He's like, There's vomit and like for, they're both covering for each other. Then it turns out like he's sweet on Mary. What my suspicion with that is this movie's runtime is two hours and thirteen minutes. My suspicion is the the first cut of the movie probably was almost three hours, and, and so there's more with him. And then suffer because of it. And I think that's a valid argument about Alexander Payne and how he handles race. I think the Asian boy is so, so such a small role. There's an argument there, but I think the bigger argument is how poorly treated Mary's character is it's, in the movie we get. Like we, because they do emphasize her importance in the themes of the film, but what happens is the only purpose for Mary in the film is to remind us of the imminent mortality that was in place for young men being drafted to Vietnam. And that's to get us to sympathize with Angus's condition. We feel sorry for Mary, but the emphasis of the film is, oh no, I hope Angus doesn't have to go because he might die like yes. Mary's son. And the thing yeah. is like, it's this bad thing that like it happens again and again in fucking like, like his movies that the women are discarded at some point. It's like, no, they're just there in order to uplift the men's story so they're better people. And he does this all the fucking time. And yeah. it makes me angry because it's like... Well, I mean, it's weird because his first film, Citizen Ruth, is a very female-centered yeah, movie. So like Divine Joy, who plays Mary, I saw her like in another show. Um, I think it was... It was a remake of a John Cusack movie. High Fidelity. Yes, she was in High Fidelity. She's playing the Jack Black role? Yes. Okay. And she did great. Because I've never seen her in anything. I looked up her filmography and I'm not familiar. It's like in uh, Murder in the Building. Like she was a detective at some point. Oh, yeah, that's her. I didn't realize that was the same actress. Wow. She can like make her voice completely. I think she was much more interesting in Only Murders in the Building than here. It's like in this one, they they give her so fucking little. What's all she is is she's grieving the death of her son. Yeah. And it's a one note thing. And so it's also like this weird thing that I feel like they're implying that there could have been a romance between her and Paul. Yeah. That was weird. Holds her hand and she's like, no, you're sweaty. And it's like, there's this whole thing that like. But I I think we might be reading into that. I think it's more than just Mr. Hunnam doesn't have any friends. And so it's simply him trying to make a connection with a friend because the film makes a much more overt move that he has feelings for Ms. Crane, the school, like the Dean's secretary. Yeah. Which plays out in its own way that kind of feels kind of sitcom-y and just like 
that plot line just kind of stops at a point. And I mean, yeah. it's a natural stopping point, but nothing is ever really done with it other than I guess maybe as the audience we're supposed to understand, no, the actual relationship that was, is important to Mr. Hunnam is the friendship he's formed with Angus and Mary. Yeah, I it is just, it's this weird thing because for example, at some point after everybody's like, Paul, you need to be nicer to them. Paul, you need to be nicer to them. Paul, you need... So he's like, okay, for Christmas, what is it that's something that would make you both happy? And Angus is like, I want to go to Boston. I want to, like, go ice skating. I want to do all this Christmas stuff, which is kind of weird when he brings up the ice skating because I'm like, I'm pretty sure you can ice skate there. It's fucking frozen, dude. Um, And they go and do, like, hang out like in boston mary goes to stay with her younger sister so we can you know watch her slowly let go of her son but there's like this weird moment when she he's like hey are you sure you could stay at the hotel with us and she's like i need a break from you two i can't stand stand your bickering i didn't get that i never got a point where we're seeing that they're like maybe talking and, and she they're like following her to every room kind of thing because it's like well there's there's ad- no build up to that yeah there's no build up that explains well, why mary is like i need to fucking get and what that kind of does is it allows them to kind of push her to the edge of the movie and yeah. we get like a montage kind of and that's where it she's like oh she's with other black people well, hanging out and that's where her like her art gets resolved is like barely any dialogue it's yeah and she's it's- giving her son's baby clothes to her little sister who's pregnant and then they're like laughing together and that's like oh mary's had her arc yeah and it's like this thing of it being okay so now angus and paul are going to like hang out and here's the thing there are a few times where their chemistry really shines like that you feel it's authentic and then other times it's just not that good and i feel like that's more uh dominic sessa because this is his like first official film or television acting credit and he is 21 i believe and he's just he is not anywhere close to the level that paul giamatti is yeah we'll talk about the role of mr hunnam but let's kind of focus on sessa and his performance as angus there was something you brought up about the physicality of his performance yeah i noticed like it was when they had the far shots. Where it's like a wide like, shot. A wide shot, either when he was waist up. He was doing a lot of physical stuff that I was like, that's a teenage boy. He would like slouch. He would like like move his arms sort of like a lanky fashion that you were just like, oh, now he feels like a teenager. It was that discomfort in your body. Yes. Yeah. And he did it so well that it made me almost upset that they're, they didn't take advantage of those shots to display that in a better manner. It was instead it was always up close so he doesn't feel as comfortable with the camera to show certain emotions. There's like a few times he grimaces and he's just like but it's this weird thing like he's kind of like unshaven so because he's unshaven he kind of looks a little bit older than the rest of the kids and then there's also like this whole thing of him being like well I moved so many schools that's been held back like a year been held back by a year and I felt like that was almost put into the film because they're just like he's maybe like he was more baby faced when they cast him and then like shit happened and they're like oh now he looks like a man um what i also think that physicality you're talking about speaks to me of he's probably in high school and i think he's at carnegie mellon as a drama student yeah a lot of time on stage performing where you have to do bigger gestures yes to communicate your performance to the audience 
And but because it's a film, Alexander Payne's doing a lot of tight shots on faces or medium shots. And yeah, he just doesn't have the presence in those shots to me the way that like Paul Giamatti has a presence in those shots. Yeah. And Paul Giamatti has such an interesting face yes. that you're you're always interested to watch him perform. Yeah, I think it's also there was not if it was supposed to be a comedy, the reactions towards like Paul when he would give out like this historical information was not as funny as they thought it was. So like he goes to the party with Miss Crane and he's giving her all this info and she's kind of like, oh, okay, interesting. And that's when we cut to, well, it turns out she's with someone else. His like, expertise is like the ancient world, particularly like Romans. Ro- like it's ancient the civilization yeah. is this whole thing. And then they go, it's not bowling, it's another version of bowling. Yeah. And he is talking to these people, like these two guys, one's dressed as Santa Claus, the other is like, and he's just interrupts their conversation to tell him these facts about it. It feels very neurodivergent. And it just feels like they're just staring him down. And that's and like that silence, that beat is meant to be the laughing moment. Yeah. But and, I didn't laugh. And I didn't laugh. I didn't find it funny. Like Where I did laugh were moments when I would be surprised. Yeah. Like um Angus being left behind and all the boys leaving. Or in the gym when Angus goes for the uh vault. Yes. And doesn't do well on it. That I thought I genuinely laughed because it was a it was a moment of surprise that took the movie in a direction you didn't oh, expect. He starts screaming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like... But let's talk about Giamatti's character, Hunnam, because I would say there's a lot of emphasis on Angus simply because that actor is he that that actor and character in the movie to try to get a younger audience in. Yeah. But it's Giamatti is like the backbone of the movie. Because mm-hmm. if you took him out of it and it's just Angus, Mary, and some other actors, Mr. Hunnam, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And this is uh, Giamatti's first collaboration with Payne since Sideways. Yes. So inevitably for me, I'm making comparisons because they're two very similar characters. They're both curmudgeons. They both have – they don't both don't have a lot of like close friendships, though his character in Sideways has at least one friendship. But even then, it's a very like it's minefield – yeah. Yeah, And I think one of the things that I noted was Sideways is a better role for Giamatti because in that he plays a character who's aware of his flaws and wrestling with them. Mr. Hunnam is oblivious to his flaws until they're – or like he at least feigns that he's oblivious to them or he's compartmentalized them in a way that he's not directly dealing with them in the way that the Sideways character was. The whole film of Sideways is about his character – coming to terms with the way he can't get over his divorce from his wife, the way he's procrastinating on his book out of a fear of failure, the way he sees himself as a failure for like the teaching job that he has. In this movie, Mr. Hunnam is like perfectly satisfied with his life. Yeah. And so it's there's not like a hook. Like there's there's not a hook there as to following this character as he transforms. His transformation just kind of like magically happens because he has a couple conversations with angus i think it's also like it feels dead in the water especially like towards the end because you don't feel excited as to what he's going to go into next it's not like in sideways it's like oh he comes to terms with himself he decides i'm gonna go fucking finish that book and i'm gonna send it to so and so so they can tell me if they like it or not and this character also has a book that he's not writing to just sort of like he gets a notebook from mary and he's like oh i don't really know where i'm gonna go maybe i'll go finish my thing but he's not 
he doesn't sound enthusiastic about it. He, he doesn't feel like he's come to the sort of epiphany that his character in Sideways did. And there's like, they're supposed to be like, and it was a little bit touching when he like, him and Angus meet for like the last time. Yeah. He's like, I don't know what you told them. I know I'm not going to military school. So thank you. And, he's, and like, that, that is a great scene. Yeah. And he's just like, you can do this. He's like, I know this seems hard, but you can do it. Like in a fatherly ma manner that feels authentic. But then you also feel like you don't know where he's going. So is he saying it out loud to convince himself that he can do it? But maybe that's like part of the film. I don't think it works, though, because I just don't feel that the holdovers has the the weight of pathos that Sideways had. And like it's, it needed an additional but it's, scene. Like I, but it I heard somebody say that the, the interactions in the holdovers come off a lot of times as cartoonish yeah and that's the vibe i got like this feels like it's not as dumb as a sitcom but maybe it's like you know a higher quality family drama yes. like the parenthood show or something where it's like yeah it's okay but it's, it's not it doesn't feel like any interesting ideas about the human condition or touched upon that you haven't seen in a million other movies or tv shows it's and that's where i'm saying like the expectations you have for this movie this movie is going to meet those expectations and it is not going to exceed them at all no. and that's what made me really sad was i was hoping that we got away from the more uh heightened reality of downsizing yeah and we were coming back to a more grounded reality and, you know, with a stylistic shift to this 1970s aesthetic, I was on board for that. But then ultimately it feels, and I don't know if this is a trend in Hollywood, it feels like it's a trend in Hollywood where movies are being written in a way that they're over-explicating the themes, meaning that they're stating the themes in a more direct way rather than letting you as an audience member discover the themes through the character's actions yeah. Which is the way, in my opinion, that's the way cinema should operate. But the way this comes across is I have this very – this serious worry about American cinema that it's being way too influenced by tropes that came from like sitcoms and Disney Channel shows. And there is a logic to that because those children are now young adults and starting their own families, right? They're going to be in their like mid-20s, early 30s. Yeah. And – they have been exposed to a certain type of media and I can see corporations just going, whoa, they like that tone. That's what the tone's going to be or the way the Marvel movies are so yeah. basic and childish in the way they present things. And it makes me very worried when I see critically acclaimed films coming out that tonally match that to some extent. This isn't as bad as a Marvel movie. It has, like we were saying, there's great scenes in it. But it doesn't leave me feeling as emotionally moved as I wanted the film to make me. Mm -hmm. And I think that has to do with the lack of maturity in the storytelling. Yeah, I think it's this weird thing because with Angus, they do like pull and tug on this line of it just being like, it's kind of confusing because I didn't know that, for example, he was considered a bad kid until I was told. Yeah, it's not very communicated very well. And it just sounded more like he was a pompous kid who just because like... All the boys we see early on are just pieces of shit. Yeah, and so it's kind of, And I don't know if it's supposed to be we're viewing him through Paul's eyes, but it's also sort of like, then wouldn't he have known that this was a troublemaker? If you got a kid 
as a teacher who got like kicked out of so many schools, you probably would have been informed that, hey, that kid has been kicked out. So we're giving him a second chance or blah, blah, blah. It's supposed to be like, oh, no, Paul's even like surprised to well, find I mean, out. I could see like the character of Paul Hunnam is one that just isn't going to look at these kids files anyway. Yeah. He's just going to teach his class and that's all that matters. But it's just like so but we're all like we know Paul like Paul's character is so solid right and but it's supposed to be like we bend and like and we kind of like wiggle a little bit for him to change but with Angus it's sort of like it's hard to know if this change has been embedded in him because there's so many times that he is kind of like acting like a child as he should have but I feel like there might have been more moments of like if I were at his age like crying like he doesn't want to leave Miss Crane's party because Denise Elise is there and they're flirting. That I and, did not like that scene felt like it went nowhere. Yeah, and then like this whole thing that when they do the, the like the ten pins thing, he's like making eyes with another girl. And so like he leaves Paul at the movie theater because he like at first we're thinking, oh, he's gonna go hook up with that girl. And it turns out like no, he went to go visit like his uh, father. His father. And it should have been that scene should have come with more emotion. Yes. And there should have been a follow, like when he's explaining to Paul what had happened between his mom and his dad, there should have been more crying and more upset and Paul like comforting him, allow telling him like, it's okay to cry. Da, da, da. Instead, he's more like stoic. So the moment that, for example, that Paul is confronted by um, Angus's parents as to what he did, which does feel like it's a big deal because the way that she's explaining it. she's and like, I did like that you have empathy for Paul's mother. She's not a one-dimensional villain. You're like, oh yeah, by doing what they did, it did create a lot of problems. Yeah, like if we had more emotion during that and also emotion from him being like, maybe for a second being like, I didn't know like that was like that he was making demands to go home and that it turned violent. Like, it's just so it, he's, it just plays out the way it wouldn't like a TV show. And so it's not very interesting. It's like this weird thing that like the argument should have been maybe like even a little bit more bigger because it like I think the actress did a great job, especially the dialogue of her being like, you had no right. This was a family matter. And he's like, but you weren't answering the phone. Like there should have been more more of a conflict between the two of them. Yes. Versus it just gets kind of resolved. It's it's done. And it's like Mary suddenly appears from the cafeteria because Miss Crane calls her so she can hold Angus's hand and that's it. And so it felt like that it was like, oh, so he made this huge sacrifice. The, yeah, the sacrifice doesn't feel like it has the emotional weight that it should other than that one scene, last scene between Angus and Hunnam. And it lasts for so little and you're yeah. not excited for what Paul's going to do in the future. So you like there should have been maybe an additional scene as to what happens to them, but the movie was already so fucking long. Yeah, <laughs> I would say it's available. I think you can rent it on all the various streaming services at the moment. If you are someone who's a big Alexander Payne fan or you've watched all of his movies, I would say go ahead and watch it. I don't think it's a waste of your time. I just don't think it's quite as good as I'm hearing a lot of people rave about it. Mm -hmm. But then again, you know, different people are going to react to it differently. So maybe someone listening will find it to be an incredibly enjoying film. But I think for us, it will not be one of our top films of the year. Mm -hmm. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Pop Cult Podcast. Make sure to check out our show notes for relevant links, including a link to our blog, popcult.blog. Make sure you also subscribe wherever it is you listen to podcasts so that you'll be notified as every new episode comes up. If you visit popcult.blog right now, we'll be starting here in the next few days for December, a series I titled A Different Kind of Christmas. So in previous years, we've looked at more traditional Christmas movies and specials. Now I want us to kind of go off the beaten path, and that includes looking at Satoshi Kon's Tokyo Godfathers, looking at some work by Tim and Eric, uh, looking at the British comedic character Alan Partridge, looking at some things by the Muppets, and more. In the second half of December, we will be doing our favorites of the year list and also trying to catch up and watch as many of these great films that are coming out here at the very end of the year. If you enjoy what we do on the podcast and on the website, please think about supporting us on Patreon. We have lots of different tiers to pick from. And I'd like to thank our current patrons, Becca and Matt, who donate at the writer's room level. You donate at that level or higher, and you'll get to pick a movie every month for us to watch and review. No matter what level you donate at, you will get access to our patron-exclusive podcasts. These are more kind of experimental ideas for series we like to try out in limited runs. Uh, Right now, we're currently in a series called Screenplay, where Ariana and I are doing a GM-less co-op role-playing game where we've kind of created our setting, story, and characters from scratch, are playing through that. We just dropped the fourth episode yesterday as of this recording, and so we hope that you subscribe so you can check those out. Well, until next time, you keep listening, and we'll keep watching. (music) Thank you.